Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Hebrews chapter 8 is really all about the covenant, and I titled it A Better Covenant because that's all what chapter 8 is all about here in uh, Hebrews. So verse 1, it says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. So in other words, it's like you've just kind of stepped into a conversation, and really the conversation's been what the last few chapters that the, the writer of Hebrews has been talking about, and he's talking specifically, I think, back to chapter 7, summarizing chapter 7. He says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. And again, referring back to chapter 7, chapter 7 talked about our great high priest. And, and the focus, I think, of last week's study was, you know, uh, we, we all believe as believers, you know, we believe in the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins on the cross. We believe that he rose again from the dead. I mean, that's the foundation, basically the foundation of, of the gospel. Um, but what the focus of uh, chapter 7 was, was that Jesus Christ is in heaven right now. He is our great high priest officiating in the priesthood for us there in heaven. And that's what chapter 7 was talking about. And then we get to uh, verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. If you were to go to Israel today um, and you go down to uh, south of Jerusalem, ways they have out in the area, it's called the Tabernacle, I think it's called the Tabernacle Experience. I know there's a traveling Tabernacle Experience here in the United States, but you can go to Israel and you can see a replica of the tabernacle. And it's kind of cool. You go in there and they kind of talk all about the construction of the tabernacle and all the things that took place. And you, you know, you go there and you go, well, I know this is a replica. And it, you know, hopefully it's kind of like what the actual tabernacle looked like. But you know, if you were to be alive in Moses's day when he was erecting the tabernacle um, after, you know, God told him what to do at Mount Sinai, that itself would be a replica too. It's a replica of what's in heaven. Herod's temple, which was the temple that was standing at the time when the book of Hebrews was written, that thing was magnificent. And in fact, um, in uh, Mark chapter 13, it says, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, see what manner of stones and buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. I mean, Herod's temple was impressive. And yet, and people were kind of wowed by it. And yet that itself was a replica of what's in heaven. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. And when he's speaking of the gifts, he's speaking of the free will offerings, the, the grain offerings, the sin and the trespass offerings, the burn offerings, the wave offerings, all these things that the priests were to and the, and the people of Israel were to offer to the Lord. Those were what he's referring to, the gifts. 
Then the sacrifices refer to all the blood sacrifices. The, the animals that would be slain on the altar, their blood would be sprinkled. And, and that's the sacrifices that we're talking about. And so what the writer is saying is these priests, they, they offered these gifts and these sacrifices. And, and therefore, it's necessary that this one, that our great high priest, have something to offer himself. And that's exactly what he did. He offered himself. Um, Jesus Christ offered himself as the Lamb of God upon the altar. But all of those offerings, all the sacrifices that, that are written out and we can study them in the Old Testament, they all point to and are fulfilled in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God. And we get to verse 4, and it says, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. You know, as you read this, the writer is talking in the present tense about the temple. He's talking about the priests and the sacrifices. And what that leads us to believe and to understand is at the time of the writing of this letter, the temple was still standing. So we can kind of date it to at least it was written sometime before 70 A.D. Because 70 A.D. was when Jerusalem was finally destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And the, the final group of the, of the Jewish people went into dispersion around, around, all around the world, actually. So but here the writer is saying all those things that, that, that we're speaking about now, they were copies and shadows you know, copies and shadows, it almost kind of sounds like the same thing, but there's a difference, and the difference is in their purpose. Copies in the uh, King James Version of your Bible, mine's, I'm reading out of the New King James, but in the King James Version, it says examples, and that's really a good, I think, a good description of what the, uh, the word copies means. It's an example or a pattern to be imitated. And so when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God gave him the instructions for how to erect the tabernacle, all the, the priestly clothing, all the sacrifices. Everything was, was given to Moses on the, on the mountain, and it was a, a, an example that he was to follow. It was like a pattern that he was to follow. You know, it's interesting. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. You and I as the individual believer in Jesus Christ, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of God, living, breathing temple of God. And then in Ephesians 2, verse 21 and 22, Paul writes this, In whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy tabernacle in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So not only are you and I individual temples of the Holy Spirit, but as like this morning we're gathered together corporately to worship the Lord, we come together in a body of Christ, and the body of Christ is the temple of God here on earth. And so not only are we as individuals the temple, but we come together, we are all part of a, of a building that God has created. And so the question that we have that we need to ask ourselves for myself individually, is my life built according to the example that's found in scriptures? 
Am I following the example that has been laid out by God for me in scriptures? Or am I living according to the culture? What is shaping and molding me? Is it, is it, what's influencing me? Is it this culture that we live in? Is it the generation that we're in? Or am I, is my life molded and influenced by scriptures? So we are to follow an example as well. Is our church, and this is something that, you know, I as a pastor, the elders, this is something that we, we weigh and we consider. Is our church following the pattern found in scriptures? It's such an important thing. Or are we being patterned after the world? It's really tempting for a church to sometimes get into, you know, uh, you bring businessmen in. How do you run a church? You know, you run it according to a business. You get all the successful models of how to do. I get advertisements all the time from these businesses about how you can make your church successful and grow the church and bring in giving. And it's all these programs and plans and stuff, but it's according to the world. I need to follow the pattern. What, what does God say a church should be like? And that's the pattern. So, so we're to follow these copies and these, these patterns, the examples. So that's what a copy is. Well, what's a shadow? Well, a shadow is an image cast by an object, and it represents the form of that object. It's a foreshadowing. But here's the thing. It's not the reality. It's just a shadow. And, you know, if you've ever been out, on the, especially the later on in the evening, you stand out there, maybe you see your own shadow. And, you know, the, depending on how low the sun is, man, your shadow can really be really, I mean, it looks like you're 20 feet tall, you know, and stuff. You'd like to do weird things and stuff. And, and, and it, it, the further the sun, you know, is changed in the horizon, man, that shadow can really grow and look different. And it's not the real thing. It's just a shadow. A shadow is not to be imitated. It's just, an, it's just a foreshadowing. You know, when I'm measuring things and, uh, you know, if I'm working on, on wood uh, or, you know, cutting things or measuring things, maybe if you're a seamstress um, and you're sewing and stuff, you know, when you're measuring, sometimes if you, you, you got to make sure you got some good light, don't you? I mean, I, I found it sometimes when I'm marking something and I've got like a straight edge, if there's just a little bit of a shadow, man, it can throw me off because I'll start line, marking against the shadow. So what I got to do and what I always do is I turn my, whatever I'm working on or measuring, I'm turning it so that the light is directly on the, you know, there's no shadow anymore. So then I see the straight edge that I'm, that I'm marking and stuff. Um, and that is such an important thing because a shadow can throw you off. And for the Hebrew readers, the tabernacle the temple, it's a copy, it's an example, it was an example of what's in heaven, but it's also a shadow. And the point is, don't worship the shadow. Don't worship the shadow, but worship the reality that it represents. For you and I, are we fixated on or worshiping a shadow? You know how silly that would be is if like, for example, I come home from work someday and my wife is sitting there in the living room and she says, hi, Don, and I, and, and I hear her and I pull out my wallet and I get this little, I've got a little, you know, a little wallet-sized picture of her and I go, oh, hi, honey, so glad to see you again. You know, I, I'd be worshiping the shadow, not the reality. My wife would be sitting there like, huh, what in the, I'm here, you know, hello, you know. Um, but that's really what, that's how silly it is for you and I to worship the shadow. And yet, you know, that's what some Christians do, particularly when you come to some of these, you know, the, 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 the feasts and all the things that are found in the Old Testament. They are beautiful pictures of what Jesus Christ is, but they're fulfilled in Christ. The reality is Christ. Don't worship the shadows. And unfortunately, some people do that. 
And, and we laughed about how silly it would be for me to kiss a picture. Well, listen, that's how silly it is for people to worship the image and not the reality of who Christ is. Verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Jesus Christ is a mediator. What is a mediator? Well, you know, in a lawsuit, a lawyer more than often, or typically, I should say, represents one client only at a time. In fact, you know, sometimes they have to they have to excuse or recuse themselves because there's maybe a conflict of interest. They have some kind of relationship with both, you know, the client, both ends of the lawsuit. Um, so a lawyer typically they represent one client. A mediator, however, they represent multiple multiple parties, usually two, but it could be, I guess it could be more than two. Parties that are at variance with each other, they step right into the middle and they are actually working on behalf of both parties. Well, Jesus Christ is our mediator. He mediated for you and I, and we were at odds with a holy God. In Colossians 1.21, Paul writes, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. He has brought us together. He's the middle person in between uh, both. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. His purpose is to bring both parties together. And he does that. In John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He brings us together. And finally, the goal of any mediator is to make peace between the two parties. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Christ Jesus. He is our mediator. He's the one who steps in between sinful man and a holy God, and he brings peace between us through his sacrifice on the cross. And so he's the mediator of a better covenant. That word covenant it's a Greek word, diatheke. And it can, get, it can kind of, there's kind of a couple different uh, interpretations, or not interpretations, but a couple different ways to understand what that word means. It can mean a disposition. As an example, you know, somebody writes a, a will and, you know, they pass away and then there's this disposition, you know, what, what are you, you going to do with their belongings? And, and that is what this word also represents. And in the sense of a last will and a, temple, and a testament, chapter 9, we won't get to that this morning, but chapter 9 talks about the strength of a will. When does a will come into effect? I'll give you a hint, it's after a person dies. So you'll see that when we get to chapter 9. Um, but that's one understanding of this word diatheke. It's a, it's a disposition or a testament. In fact, you know, that's where we get the word the Old Testament and the New Testament, same word. The other understanding or the other way to under, uh, translate it or, or the other meaning behind it is that it's a compact or a covenant. And that's what chapter 8 deals with the, 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 in the sense of a contract. A covenant. The essence of a covenant is the establishment of a relationship. That's the essence of a contract. Um, there's a company 
out in Southern California, and its name, it's a, I don't know if it's a credit union or a financing company, but its name is Allegro Credit. Now, two years ago, I didn't know Allegro Credit. I've never heard of it before. Um, and they probably had never heard of me. But then one day, I decided to buy hearing aids, and I had to finance them because I didn't have insurance for it, so I had to pay for them, and they're not cheap. So I had to finance my purchase. Well, the finance company was Allegro Credit. And so we went into a contract together. So now there's a relationship between Allegro Credit. I know who they are, and they know who I am. And fortunately, I've paid that off, so I'm no longer in that relationship with them. But, but that's a contract. It establishes the essence of a contract is a relationship with two people. Well, God established a covenant with Abram. We know him as Abraham. God established a uh, covenant with him in Genesis chapter 12. And the covenant that he established with him, it's, it's referred to as the Abrahamic covenant, covenant. That covenant, that contract is unconditional. God came to Abram and, and, and promised to bless his seed after him. That he would have children, that he would have descendants, and that he, his descendants would become a nation, and, and that nation would bless all the other nations on the earth. That was part of that covenant. That was an unconditional promise that God made to Abram. And then the promise of giving him the land of Israel. Again, it's unconditional. And that covenant is still in force today for the nation of Israel. Now, there are some churches, some believers that believe that it's called replacement theology. And, and this is kind of in a nutshell. I'm not an expert on it. But in a nutshell, the, the theory is that the New Testament church has now spiritual Israel. And so you go and you look at all the promises that God made to Abraham, and, and it all applies to the church now because the church is spiritual Israel. And so they look at all those promises. They say they all have been transferred to the church. That's replacement theology. I do not ascribe to that. I don't believe that is biblical. In fact, it's interesting. The very existence of the state of Israel right now, the nation state in the land of Israel, is proof of the unconditional covenant of God with the nation of Israel. That's the Abrahamic covenant. It is unconditional. God also established a relationship with the children of Israel, another covenant. That's the covenant of the law. It's also known as the Mosaic covenant. That was in Exodus chapter 19. That covenant was a conditional covenant. That was based on their obedience in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's known as the, the chapter that talks about the blessing and the cursings. And God said, if you, if you uh, hold or keep my covenant, man, these are all the things that I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. And it's just all these wonderful blessings for the nation of Israel if they keep the covenant. And then the other flip side of that coin is if you break the covenant, these are all the things that are going to happen to you, all the curses that are going to fall upon you. And sadly, in history, you know, at the beginning when the, when, when the children of Israel received the covenant, they're like, we'll follow it. But through time, they broke the covenant. Well, the writer here in Hebrews chapter 8 is not talking about the unconditional uh, Abrahamic covenant, but the covenant of the law, which was conditional. That's what he's referring to here as we'll see in verse 7. 
For if that first covenant had been faultless, again, this is the covenant of the law, the Mosaic covenant. If that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. This argument is a very similar argument that the writer made in chapter 7, verse 11. He said, you know, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, there wouldn't be another reason for another priesthood. You know, if there was nothing wrong with the Levitical priesthood, then we wouldn't have this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Well, this is the same argument here. If the first covenant was free from fault, you know, God's not just into change for the sake of change. Hey, it's time to do a new covenant. No. There's a reason why he did it, because there was a problem with that first covenant. It wasn't free from fault or defect. And you go, wait a minute. Didn't God make the, de make the covenant with Abram, or I mean with the with children of Israel? I mean, was there something wrong with what he did? No. The fault wasn't with the covenant. Look at verse 8. Because finding fault with them, he's speaking of the children of Israel. What was wrong? Well, the problem... It's one word. It's sin. Sin was the problem. Because of sin, man can't keep the righteous requirements of the old covenant. The law of Moses, what did it do? It declared God's holy standard for the children of Israel, but it never gave them the power needed to obey it. It just declared God's standard. And if once they did break the covenant, it could not permanently remove sin nor the consequences of sin. So what do we learn about this new covenant? It's based on better promises. First of all, it provides hope. The new covenant provides hope. Look at that in verse 8. And in verse uh, 8 and going on from there, the writer is, is quoting uh, from the book of Jeremiah, a prophecy. While the children of Israel were, the, new, the old covenant was still in effect. They were, they were smack dab in the middle of it. And they were paying the consequences. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. They were paying the consequences of breaking the covenant. And then God introduces or prophesies this new covenant. Hey, guys, don't give up hope. There's a new covenant that I'm making. And so it says the days are coming, coming. Listen, Israel, by this time, the nation of Israel, they had had a civil war and they had divided. There was a 10 northern tribes that was known as the nation of Israel, the southern two and a half tribes known as Judah. And the, the northern 10 tribes, the nation of Israel, they had already been removed from the land. I'm talking about when Jeremiah wrote this prophecy. They had already been removed from the land for breaking the covenant. Judah, the, 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 the nation to the south of them, they witnessed what happened. They should have, it should have served as a warning. And yet they disregarded the warning. And so they're too about to, in Jeremiah's ministry, they're about to reap the consequences of their sin. They had disregarded God's covenant. And so he was going to disregard him. You see, under the old covenant, there was no hope for Israel under the old covenant. But there is under the new covenant. The new covenant, 
and you'll notice that it's going to, it mentions uh, that it's for both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In other words, the Lord God is going to unite the nation once more into one nation known as Israel. Now again, Israel had already been dispersed and Judah was about to be dispersed. And it would look like once they, once they went into captivity, like all hope was gone. And so God's timing to give this prophecy to the children of Israel in the book of Jeremiah, the days are coming. There's hope. There's hope on the horizon. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Why did it provide hope for Israel? Well, because the old covenant was conditional based on their obeying the covenant. And they actually lost hope because they failed the covenant. But the new covenant would be unconditional because it's based on better promises. You know, in Romans the, Paul writes about the fact that you and I, as a, if you're a Gentile, I mean, there might be some Jewish believers here, but if you're a Gentile, you know, and the Gentile believers, we've been grafted in to the nation of Israel. And so we're, we are right now recipients of this new covenant that God has blessed us with. And for you and I, just think about it. If your or my salvation was based on my performance or your performance, man, there wouldn't be any hope. We would have already lost hope. But it's not based on you and I. It's based on what Christ did on the cross for us. What a blessing that is. So it provides hope. It also promises transformation from within. In other words, not just merely outwardly conforming to a written law. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Speaking of the new covenant, you know, the interesting thing is, God's heart, even under the old covenant, was that the children of Israel the people that he was making the covenant with, that, would, that they would love him from their heart. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, verses 12, and then later on, verse 16. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's under the old covenant. That was God's desire for the children of Israel. And then verse 16, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Circumcision, that was one of the, one of the, the requirements of Jewish males, that they would be circumcised. And it was, a, it was a physical outward action. But God all along said, man, this is just a picture, man. Circumcise your heart. Cut away the flesh from your heart. But because of sin, Israel was unable to fulfill their end of the contract. And the law did not provide a remedy, only a consequence to be paid. Well, the new covenant would provide inner transformation. And even back again, during the time of the old covenant, Ezekiel prophesied this. In Ezekiel 36, verse 27, 26 and 27, I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my, in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. You know, man, we still have a sin nature. 
But under the new covenant, God provides the power needed for you and I to obey him. How? In the person of the Holy Spirit who would indwell the believers in Jesus Christ. When you come to faith in Christ Jesus, you've received the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he's a sign and a seal of our salvation. And it's his working in us that gives us the power to obey God's covenant. Titus 3, 6, 3, 3, I should say. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He's given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to enable us to live a life pleasing to God. In fact, Paul says, mentions that in Philippians 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Under the new covenant, we've been given the spirit of God to dwell inside of us, and he gives us the will to do God's will, and he enables us to do God's will. God is at work in the believer. Thankful for that. What else does the new covenant promise? Well, it promises intimacy. The old covenant could never provide the level of intimacy that God desired for Israel. And you even see it in Exodus chapter 19 when God is giving the law to Moses. God appeared to the children of Israel there at Mount Sinai. And all that it produced was fear and dread. In fact, it was so bad. The noise and the, just the, 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 it was such a frightening experience that the children of Israel said, Moses, you go up to the mountain. You listen to God. We don't even want to hear his voice. You know, I mean, we're, we're just shaking. You know, I'm sure Moses is probably shaking too, but he's like, oh, you know. In fact, I think he even mentions that at one point. The law produced fear and dread. But the new covenant, look, it says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul said this in Titus 2.14, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. We're able to enter into an intimate relationship with God through Christ Jesus in this new covenant. What else did it provide or promise? It promised salvation. Verse 11, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. It's an interesting verse. You know, if you read in the Old Testament, uh, I just finished um, the book of Ezekiel, and there's all these prophesi prophecies against these nations around Israel. And, and God says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy, you know, the, the Babylonians. Basically, they're going to come in, they're going to destroy the land, and then you'll know that I am the Lord. And, and he says that there's like, I counted like 66 times in the Old Testament where God says either you are going to know that I'm the Lord or they are going to know that I am the Lord. 
What, what is he referring to? He wants them to recognize that God is on the throne. He's in control. To have this, to, to know the Lord is to have an intimate, complete knowledge of him. You know, it's interesting in the Bible to know someone, it was also a Jewish idiom for sexual intercourse. I mean, that's the most intimate knowledge of someone. Now, some people look at this verse and say, well, that means under the new covenant, I don't need any teachers. I mean, why go to church? You know, I just the Holy Spirit can teach me. I don't need any teachers. I don't believe that's what this is saying. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the gift of teaching. So why would God give the gift of teaching if teaching was no longer necessary under the new covenant? And Paul instructs pastors in his epistles, they're commanded to preach and teach and to exhort. So what does this know the Lord mean? I think it's synonymous with salvation. It's that complete, intimate knowledge that you and I receive uh, through salvation. It's when you and I come into that knowledge of the living God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's how we know the Lord. Well, under the new covenant, no one, and so I believe this is what this verse is saying, no one's going to be barred from having their own saving relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, John 3.15, John said that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, ever, have eternal life. Under the old covenant, you know, it, was for the, it was for the children of Israel, or if you became a proselyte to Judaism. Um, but the Gentiles, it wasn't for them necessarily at all. And yet, under the new covenant, whoever, doesn't matter who you are, what background you have, if you put your trust in Christ Jesus for salvation, man, it's, it's available. And I think that's what this verse is speaking of. What else does the new covenant promise? It promises the complete removal of sin. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. As we're, we're going to continue seeing this later on in Hebrews, um, it's going to talk a lot about the old covenant sacrifices. They provided forgiveness and a, and a covering over of sin, but not a removal of sin. In fact, that's why this, the sacrifices were repeated over and over and over again, because it was temporary. Because they, they, they provided a covering until you sinned again. Well, we're sinners and we sin. And so they'd be repeating it over and over again. And, and the writer, and we'll get to it later on in Hebrew, says it, it was a reminder of, of sin. A reminder of the need to repeat it over and over again. And then in Hebrews 10, verses 3 through 4, it says, But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins, could just cover over, couldn't remove them. But under the new covenant, not only are we forgiven of our sins, but our sins are removed from us, completely removed. That means the guilt, the shame, everything is taken from you and I when we, when we confess our sins to Christ Jesus. This covenant, this new covenant, the old covenant was conditional. The new covenant is unconditional. It's interesting if you look in these verses how many times God says, I'm going to do this. He doesn't say, if you do this, then I'm going to do that. But look at this. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. 
It's all unconditional what God would do for you and I through Christ Jesus. Well, the next question is, who are the recipients of this new covenant? And I kind of alluded to it earlier. Is it the church or is it the nation of Israel? And the answer, I think, is both. You know, the Bible teaches Israel is God's olive tree. And you and I as Gentile believers, if you're a Gentile here this morning, we've been grafted in through faith into the nation of Israel. We've been grafted in and, and through Christ Jesus. And now you and I are partakers of that new covenant right now. You and I as believers, we, we're, we're in that new covenant. We're partaking of and enjoying the benefits and the blessings of the new covenant. But again, God has not forsaken his people, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. They're not, if you, you, know, you go to Israel and sometimes, the first, well, we only went once, but I remember thinking, man, you get to Israel and everyone, they love the Bible. You know, they're all, they're all uh, Orthodox Jews. That's not true. You get there, they're a very secular nation. They're not enjoying the blessings of the new covenant, partaking of it, but they will. God promises in his word, it's an unconditional promise. When will that take place? Well, I believe that the scripture teaches when the rapture of the church takes place, when God returns for the church, then the, the nations, the world's going to enter into a period. We know it as the great tribulation. The Bible also calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. And during that time, they are going to, at the end of, that of the end of the tribulation, they are going to see Jesus Christ coming in the clouds. They're going to recognize him as their Savior, as their Messiah, and they will turn to him in faith, and they will be partaking of the new covenant during the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Listen, the new covenant is centered on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the center of the new covenant. It's a covenant of grace as opposed to a covenant of the law. And the Bible says all are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. So what about the Old Testament saints? Are they saved? Well, those who looked forward in faith to the coming of the Messiah, to the coming of the work of Jesus Christ, they are saved. The New Testament saves, saints, excuse me, both Jew and Gentile, we look back. The Old Testament saints, they were looking forward to the cross. Those ones, by faith, they're saved. You and I, we're, we're looking back to the cross. Still, the cross is the center of central thing of our covenant. The New Testament saints, we look back to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, the nation of Israel will be saved after the great tribulation when they see Christ their Messiah. And then finally, we get to verse 13. Change is coming. This one was, this verse really just jumped out at me. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That picture that you're seeing on the screen there, it's a, it's a model of Herod's temple, what they understood Herod's temple to look like. Again, and I mentioned earlier, everything that we read in the book of Hebrews points to the fact that the sacrifices, the high priests, the temple, it's in the present tense. All, everything that mentions them. So in other words, the temple was still standing. The temple that looked someone, something like that, Herod's temple. 
And yet, even while the temple was standing, Christ had already died on the cross and rose again from the dead. So the old covenant at that point already was obsolete. But as I've mentioned many times, the, the letter of the, of, to the Hebrews was written because there were Hebrew believers. They had turned to faith in Christ Jesus, but after a while, it's like, you know, Jesus Christ, they, he's, he's promised to return. He hasn't come back yet. And, they, and, and then having to deal with family members, and maybe they, family members weren't saved, and, you know, there's, there's ostracized, you know, they're getting ostracized because of their faith in Christ, and the temple's still standing, the sacrifices, and, you know, it's tempting sometimes to go back to where you've been. Sometimes it's hard to keep plugging forward. It's tempting to go back. And so undoubtedly, these Hebrew believers, they were tempted to go back. But what the whole letter is saying, hey, the old covenant's obsolete. And what is growing old is ready to vanish away. What an understatement. Again, we don't know exactly when the letter of Hebrews was written, but we know from history that this great temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, was this letter, you know, 10 years, 20 years, five years before? I, I don't know. But Herod's temple stood for 420 years, roughly, about 420 years. That temple existed. Prior to that, Solomon's temple stood for 410 years. Prior to that, the tabernacle was being used by the children of Israel for 440 years. Kind of interesting. Now compare that to the United States. The United States is 245 years old. You know, there's some nations in, in Europe that have like just millenniums old, you know. Uh, we're just basically 245 years old. Well, these Hebrew believers, the ones that were trying to go back or they were tempted to go back to June, they didn't realize, man, pretty soon that temple's going to be gone. There's going to be no more priests. There's going to be no more sacrifices. And for 2,000 years, the Jewish people, they have not been able to do the blood sacrifices they still do the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, but they call it, it's a day of afflicting yourself. They've, they've changed it because there's no blood sacrifice, and yet Scripture clearly teaches that there has to be blood sacrifices. So for all these years, they've just been, uh, you know, winging it, basically. The change is coming. You know, I look at our society right now, and man, I tell you, you know, you think about a year and a half ago, two years ago, would you imagine the changes that have taken place? It, it, it floors me. You know, some change is really gradual. Uh, you know, we've seen a gradual change in, you know, uh, uh, how Christianity is kind of getting, you know, marginalized in the public square and stuff. And then now it's to the point where, you know, we're actually hate, haters and everything. But, you know, at first we were just laughed at. Now we're haters, you know, and it's, you know, that change was kind of a gradual change. But this change that we've experienced recently, man, has been rapid, rapid. And for the children of Israel, for the, for the, or not the children, but the Hebrew believers, they don't realize how fast things are going to change for them. Change is coming. And change is quick. I know there's a few things that are not going to vanish away, no matter what changes. Right? The church, the church is not going to be obsolete. And I'm speaking of, of the building. This building could, you know, we could end up not being in this building anymore for whatever reason. That, that could easily change overnight. But the church, the body of Christ, 
will never vanish away. The voice of conservatism, uh, there's a good chance and there's a lot of people trying to silence the conservative opinions that might vanish away from the public square. So it's looking more and more like it is. But what's not going to vanish is the word of God, our testimonies. Being able to share, that's not going to vanish. So there's things that are not going to vanish away, but there is change coming. And, I, and we've already experienced change. I, I'll be honest with you. One of the things that this last year has really been, I, I think God's really used it in my personal life. It's been a refining for me. You know, I, I just been digging into the word more and more, and I'm just falling in love with God's word more than I ever did before, honestly. And what, what I found is that, you know, God, these changes, God wants to use it in our lives for good. And sometimes the change isn't, isn't very pleasant, but God uses it for good. He wants to refine you and I. And I don't know what, you know, sometimes we go, well, I sure like to go back to normal. I wish church was like it was before. And, you know, again, the church is not vanishing away. But some of the things that maybe we were holding on to could change, you know. And, and the point is, what's important? One of the things I'm, I, you know, the Lord's been showing me what's important. Man, stay true to his word. Love the people that, are, that, are, that I'm fellowshipping with. Love and serve them. And, and just continue on faithfully. But I want to encourage each one of us. You know, one of the things that's been my, my prayer for, uh, the Lord's been doing it with me, but I, I pray that for our own fellowship, is that we as believers here at Calvary Chapel Rochester, and those that are joining us online as well, that we would just fall in love with God's word. Just, just desire him and desire his word and then the other aspect of that is to be more surrendered to the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to lead this fellowship. I want the Holy Spirit to lead my life and to lead your life. That we would be, we would be led by the Spirit. That's been such a, 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 a desire on my heart. It's a prayer in my heart. And, and so I just want to encourage you. You know, there's things that are going to become obsolete. Um, but again, the church is not obsolete. The word of God is not obsolete. Your relationship with the Lord God, it's not obsolete. Um, Jesus Christ is still our high priest. He's still ministering for you and I on the throne in heaven. So praise God for that. Why don't we go, Lord, in prayer, and then I'll have the worship team come on up. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray for um, each one of us. Lord God, as we've gone through some big changes in our lives, Lord, a lot of upheaval. Um, for some people, it's been financial change. For others, it's been relational. Uh, and for some, it's families. There's been, uh, it's interesting how even Christians aren't immune from the division that's, that's occurred in this last year or so. Father, I pray that Lord, through the changes that we've been experiencing, Lord, that we would see what is important, see the things that remain, and that, Lord, our hearts and our focus would be on you. Lord, maybe there are some things in our lives that, Lord, we just needed to push away to the wayside because they were frivolous, and maybe we were focused on them rather than focused on you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to do a work in us as individuals, Lord, that you continue to refine us, 
Lord, that we would focus on the main thing, and the main thing is you, Jesus Christ, and your finished work on the cross for us. And that, Lord, we might, as individuals and as believers, as the body of Christ, be submitted to your spirit in our lives in every aspect. I pray that for each one of us, Lord. And so I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you, Lord, that we are recipients. Lord, we've been grafted in. We've been allowed to enjoy the, the fruit, the blessings of this new covenant that you made. And Lord, we do pray for Israel. Lord, we do pray for the Jewish people that they would come to faith in you. Lord, that they would come to see you and recognize you as their savior. Lord, this morning we love you. We thank you and we bless you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's close with a worship song.